Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present, and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Ian Pollock, together with my fellow familiar strangers, Dr. Julia Brown. Yay! <laughs> First time introducing her as doctor. And Jody Lee Tremba. Hi. Who has submitted and will hopefully be doctor very soon. And special guest, Dr. Siobhan McDonnell. Hello. Dr. McDonnell is starting a lecturing and research position at the Crawford School here at ANU. Her background is in indigenous land rights, climate change, and gender. Before we get started with this episode, I have a quick announcement. Our Facebook group, The Familiar Strange Chats, is finally going live. It's a place where everybody can continue the discussion. Anything you feel got cut off a little early, things you want to ask more questions about, debates, things you think we got wrong, this is the place. So just uh, look us up on Facebook, The Familiar Strange Chats, ask to join, and we'll add you in. So pause. Pause now. Pause the podcast. Go add it in, and then you'll be able to debate with whoever else is on there as you're listening, almost in real time. Okay, I'm now assuming that you paused and went and did that, and now you're back. So let's get started. This month, we have a special themed discussion on the topic of getting ready to go do fieldwork. And we're going to start off with Siobhan, who's started a new resource on this topic of getting ready for the field. What is it called? It's called Navigating the Field, and it's built as an online resource that anyone can access globally. And basically, Dr. Annie McCarthy and I decided in the context of kind of the broad set of Me Too debates, but a range of other issues that we needed to kind of carefully walk people through some of the conversations that I think are really important to start thinking around before you go into the field. So it's built as a series of modules and it starts with a really deep thinking around positionality. Who are you? Why are you in this space? What's the context for going in there? And we really wanted to rupture that kind of Malinowski idea of a, the lone man heading out into the wilderness to research the others. It's also about challenging what the field is, you know. These days, there is rarely a field. People do multi-sided ethnography. They do ethnographies that are porous. They do ethnographies in their own communities a lot of the time. It's also about saying, okay, there are issues. There can be complex issues in the field, but there are also issues around violences on campus that we have to name as well. The academy is not a safe space, so let's name that. And then the other set of issues are around the issues of representation. What is the politics of how you write about a group of people? What are you prepared to include? How are you thinking around those sets of things? So we also wanted to celebrate fieldwork as a really unique experience in our lives. You know, it's it's challenging, but it's also kind of ex can be quite extraordinary as well. So holding all of those things together, what we've built is really a set of modules that are designed to prompt you to think around a whole variety of issues. What are some of the common pitfalls you feel like students fall into? I think it is often the case that students are not well prepared structurally within the discipline of anthropology. I don't think we do enough really good work around preparing students 
when we ran the course last year, we encountered students who were really traumatised by their experience of being in the field. And this is a real issue, I think, for us, or for me personally as a supervisor now, but also, you know, we're constantly kind of, you know, describing ethics committee processes, but we're not necessarily preparing people adequately for the context that they're about to move through. So trauma, absolutely methodological framings that help people really think structurally around some of these issues. It's not okay for people to come out of anthropology with PhDs without having thought around some of the complexities of these issues, of how we write, of how we represent. And as an anthropologist, you have to be able to articulate how you hold your space in the context of our discipline. So the resources that you've put together, would, would you describe that as an interactive kind of course like people able to go in and are they doing worksheets or reflections how does that work yeah what we've tried to do is show the way the questions we posed were dealt with by the group so what that kind of interactive conversation looked like but we've also created modules that allow you to think through a series of readings about a set of issues and we've also tried I think carefully to name the violence of the academy. So, you know, looking at Sarah Ahmed's work, looking at Zoe Todd, looking at a whole range of scholars who've really challenged the academy as a safe space. You know, another thing that prompted Annie and I to do this work was that we sat at ANU, we sat with the reports that were documenting the scale of violence on campus and then sexual sexual violence yeah sexual violence on campus which is markedly worse if you face one of those intersectionality issues so if you're a queer identifying person or you're an indigenous person or you're a person who's less able then you face much higher levels of violence on on the ANU campus today this is really distressing and so when I attended a meeting of the deans of HDR research across Australia last year I went as the Gender Institute representative people were talking about a range of strategies for dealing with violence on campus but no one was talking about what happens in the field mm. right can I just ask on this note of interpersonal violence how would you suggest that people who haven't done field work before prepare themselves to make better boundaries because I think it's a real issue in anthropology in particular. Yeah. I, look, I totally agree. And I mean, Ian was asking earlier, what were some of the issues? I think a lot of the issues come from exactly that place. You know, you're often in a new environment. You're desperately trying to create a body of research. You've got a limited amount of time. You're trying to build relationships with a group of people and maybe your boundaries are not where they should be. And I guess what I would be saying to people is in the same way that you try and navigate your boundaries in a space that you feel safe, you know, or familiar with, you have to maintain a similar set of boundaries, but you also need to be aware of differences of environments. You know, if you are a lone woman going out into the field in, you know, in various places in the world, you look strange, you know. In terms of people's own kinship and familiar relations, they wouldn't be sending a 23-year-old woman out in the world by themselves. So you're going to have to work out what that means in terms of your practice. Where can people find this resource? HTTPS 
fieldwork.webblocks.anu.edu.au. We built it in the hope that it could travel, that it would be a helpful resource, that people might want to use parts of it or bits of it in other parts of the world where these conversations are happening. You know, like what is it that we can contribute to the next generation of scholars that might help them navigate these spaces? Very, very important questions. We'll have links to all of this in the show notes, of course. And with that, we're going to move on to the next topic. Jody, tell us, what have you been thinking about in relation to fieldwork? Well, right now I'm thinking I really wish I'd had that resource before I went on fieldwork. My topic, I guess, for this week is exactly that. I want to know what it is that you guys wish you'd known before you went on fieldwork. So I actually posed this question on Twitter and Facebook before the show, and a couple of people got back to me with some really interesting stuff. So Marsha G, at G Marsha on Twitter, says, make sure you take time for things and routines that keep you grounded. Like, for example, listening to your home radio station or sports or music, etc. Reach out to your colleagues and friends that may go through similar experiences. A chat group helps me. Letters, Skype from time to time. So I thought that was a particularly interesting idea, particularly the, the idea of listening to the familiar things and sort of having the sensory experiences of home to ground you. I thought that was a fascinating idea. This one was from Dani, who is at Anthroqueer on Twitter. And Dani talks about the best thing I ever did in prep for fieldwork was to request a meeting with the PI beforehand. Now I'm thinking that Dani must come from actually an anthro-adjacent field. I'm thinking of the Tiffany Kane interview that you did, Ian. Oh yeah, where she was part of a big group exactly. that had a principal investigator, yeah. it wasn't her. Exactly. Although sometimes when you need legal sponsorship to do your field work, like I did, you have to have a PI. Mm. Yeah, so. okay. Well, so what Dunny says is that having a meeting with the PI beforehand to talk about safety protocols and who I should contact if there was an issue meant being able to feel so much more confident going in after that. And, and then Pauline Herbst at Writing Anthro says that she used to keep a list in the back of her field journals of what she needed and reminders of ethnography saving habits to keep reminding myself of my focus, which I did a similar thing on the back page of my fieldwork notebook. I always had like a running list of, you know, remember to buy more tissues because I know it's kept running because of all the air conditioning, which actually it's just occurred to me that all of those of you who are not in office buildings for fieldwork are probably really mad at me for having air conditioning. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yes, it was delightful. I apologize. So like things like that, just trying to constantly get the practicalities out of my head so that I could focus on the observations Mm. I found quite useful. Did you have anything like that? I think when we ran the course last year, one of the things that people raised, which I thought was really interesting and that we don't talk about very much, is what it's like to come back from the field, right? So this kind of point of, for some people, this point of rupture, this idea that you've got, for me, I felt like I had this really kind of weird duplicitous identity, like I was sitting in a little office at ANU writing a thesis about people in another country that was like palpably real to me. But yeah, that idea of what it is to return, what it is to kind of jolt back into having to write up. For me, that took a very particular form in that my partner and I had a baby right after we came back. But my ideas about child rearing and community around child rearing were then really informed by the community that we had just left. Mm. So we had been in southeastern Indonesia in a rural village where child rearing was, you know, done in quite a communal way and children were running in and out of everybody's houses and you'd see the two-year-olds wandering off into the forest together and everybody's like, they'll probably be fine. That did not apply 
to this Australian context. And yet I had all these expectations about what rearing a child would be like mm. because of this very intense experience that I just came out of. I carried more back with me than I thought. Mm. I think something that I wish I'd taken on board was the importance of telling people in your personal life that what you're going to go through is potentially going to be quite dislocating and so they're aware of the challenges you might have because I think Mm. I was very lucky and I had a very supportive partner and wonderful friends but at times I felt like I was really not myself and I think it took them some adjusting as well as me to get used to the fact that I was processing things, I was decompressing when I got back from field work and I don't yeah. know. I mean, I think the PhD journey is such a complicated and transformative experience and I think it's so hard for people to understand from the outside. Mm. And I think so field work is part of that difficulty, right? It's a weird thing. For the most part, it's still a very unique process. Yes, I'm going to be extremely poor for this extended period of time and do this thing that's going to drive me almost to the brink of insanity. But don't worry, it'll all be worth it, will it? Like. <laughs> Now, we never know. That's the wry laugh of a bunch of early career researchers <laughs> right there. Okay. Now, this is, these are topics that we could obviously unpack forever. We do have to move on Sorry, to the next yes. one. But before we do, I just want to remind everybody listening out there, if you have more you want to say, and I know that you do, now is the time. Go to the Facebook chats group, the Familiar Strange chats, and bring up the things that we haven't gotten to yet. Ask the questions we haven't asked yet. So moving on, Julia, tell us, what are you thinking about? So I've been thinking about ways in which we can use the body. This is something that resonates a lot with my fieldwork experiences, but I was recently looking at the Somatic Toolkit, which is run by some people at the University of Coventry in the UK, and they have a podcast called Remember Your Body. They basically talk about how you put your body through the rituals of the culture that you're studying in order to educate your body and educate yourself about that culture's way of being. So on one of the opening podcast episodes, Jerome Lewis from University of College London said, if we're not attentive to the way that our own bodies are engaging with that culture, we're not able to actually understand or report or translate that culture into the language of our own culture. And an immediate example would be learning what is appropriate to wear in an environment, what physical distances and manners are appropriate. In my fieldwork, which is based in two medical settings, I also paid attention to how spaces themselves made me feel and how I could relate to my participants via those shared bodily experiences that we may have been having because of the environment we're in. You know, for instance, quite quickly, I noticed myself and others becoming more seemingly at ease once we were familiar with each other, once we knew predictable routines that were happening in the clinic the smells and the sounds. For those of you unfamiliar with my research, I was looking at the experiences of health amongst people that are diagnosed with chronic schizophrenia being treated with a heavy antipsychotic drug called clozapine that has lots of side effects. Those side effects are monitored in the clozapine clinics, which was the fieldwork space. And, you know, a lot of the things my participants were talking to me about were physical experiences, but also mental as part of that and some of the values around health that came up 
were what it meant to be able to feel connected between your mind and your body and to concentrate while you were reading, to feel in control and stronger through exercise, for example. So I was reflecting on what they were telling me about it as I was doing those things as well. And this extended to how anxious they felt in certain environments and how they felt mistrusting of certain people. When I had glimmers of that mistrust, etc., or I felt let down by people or confused expectations about things. I just felt these things in a new way. Doing ethnography for me was a method acting of sorts. It required my embodied involvement and I believe it made my data more reliable because I felt like I really understood in a very connected way what my participants meant. So my question for you guys is how have you used your bodies to think through experiences of your participants during fieldwork? I, I love this question. This was a big part of what I was doing in the field. So I write a lot about affect and effective swirls. And Ooh, what are effective swirls? Effective mm. mm. uh, swirls are sort of the idea that affect, which is kind of the output of emotion, the way that those emotions affect the physical environment around you so they affect the air they change uh, smells and so the environment has an affect that then will affect you is this like an updated version of effervescence yeah it kind of is so i was really conscious that because i was being impacted by the effective swirls but i really felt like we were all responding to the same biochemical reactions as well which sounds a little bit determinist but it's not so much that, it's more just that there were all of these different factors all working together to create every single given moment. So I feel like the way that I used the body in the field, it, it had much more to do with kind of physical reactions to moments. And that especially came up because I went to a lot of feasts. And at these feasts, A, you eat a lot. And the way that you feel about that feeling of bodily fullness, whether it communicates some kind of satisfaction or some kind of disgust, just an uncomfortable feeling or a pleasant feeling, that was something you could talk about with people. But also, uh, a lot of animal slaughter was going on at these events. And my physical reaction to that was often one of to sort of recoil or one of disgust or when it was painful for me to watch. And so what came up the most as I looked at these moments were really points of difference, not points of sameness, not moments of like, oh, yes, I'm feeling the same thing as the people around me. It was really just a path to learning about myself rather than learning about the people I was there to, to learn from or to study with. But maybe you were also learning boundaries as well, like the limits to which you could relate to them. There definitely were boundaries, and it was definitely a way to help me sort of feel out the edges of my assumptions. And it can be helpful to have those pointed out to you. And emotional or physical reaction differences can be useful in helping to find out where those borders are. I think my starting point for this conversation is that, you know, fieldwork by its nature is deeply embodied. In the Pacific, there's a long history of really beautiful ethnography based around dance, right? So there's also the idea of learning Indigenous knowledges and ways of being and situating your work in this broad corpus of Indigenous knowledge. So that might be around navigating of canoes or it might be around weaving these complex woven patterns, right? Or it could be around dancing and, and learning dance as a form. Your body is positioned in all kinds of ways, right? So when I'm part of a ministerial delegation where I sit, who I sit next to, the order in which we're served food, the order in which we're served kava, 
All of these things are carefully structured by people around me, are reflective of a hierarchy that we're embedded within. We are going to have to move on for lack of time to the final topic, which is me talking about going to the field with a partner, which is the way that I conducted my field work. So I took my, at the time, my partner, she became my wife over the course of that year. And we took a little while and traveled around, got married and had a series of parties. It was wonderful. But uh, that's what field work is actually for. <laughs> well, it's I tell you what, when she said she wanted to come to the field with me, that's when I decided I, I ought to marry this woman. This was going to be a good match. <laughs> so having her with me there in the field affected all kinds of things about my research, mostly in positive ways, occasionally in negative ones. So in positive ways, in terms of emotional support. In terms of, I mean, we're talking about gender and knowing sort of how you position yourself in the field. Being part of a married couple was important, but also just being with a woman, even if she wasn't my wife, but to be with a woman who could give me some access to female or otherwise gendered spaces. There were some unintended consequences that I couldn't say were positive or negative. For instance, you know, she had never lived outside of Australia before. I had to make sure to find a house she would be comfortable in so that she could actually spend long periods of time there. And that meant that I didn't find a place that was suitable in the village I had intended to do my research in. I had to go to a different village instead. That changed everything. It changed the whole topic of, of my research ultimately. Another thing is that, you know, she didn't stay for months and months at a time. She would stay a month, two months at a time, and then she might go someplace else. And every time she left, I'd get depressed for a couple of days mm -hmm. and hole up in my house and not really get anything done. And then I'd recover and get back out there. But, you know, it was the price to pay for the emotional support while she was there, every time she went away. There was a dip in my emotional state. And so I think each of you have had different experiences having to do with partners and going to the field. Maybe you could say a little bit about what your experience was like. Well, my partner didn't come to the field with me. That was largely pragmatic, but I don't think I could have done the kind of research I was doing if he was around all the time. And I think it's totally different for everyone. I also did not go to the field with my husband, except we had a plan. So our plan was that I was going to go to Vietnam and he was going to get a transfer for the year to one of his company's offices in Singapore. And then we would only be an hour away from each other. But he had an accident just before, before I was supposed to leave for the field. And I basically was like, okay, well, I'm not going to stay in Australia and find a different project. And then I got offered an Endeavour scholarship based on the project that I had originally pitched. And my husband insisted that I go, and I did, which I always felt really uncomfortable about. Leaving him behind was possibly one of the hardest things I've had to do. It was incredibly difficult. And that's the academy, right? Like, yeah. you, you get an opportunity, you run with it because chances are something like that's not going to come around again. So mm. even now, having finished, having submitted, and everything having worked out great, he's really well now, and, and even now I'm still not sure I made the right decision. I would just like to make another pitch for the Academy recognising the diversity of what fieldwork can look like. There was no question in my head when I applied for a PhD, I was heavily pregnant with my second baby. Like, I mean heavily. I was a package deal, right? And I had this super supportive husband who was like, sure, we can relocate our entire lives to another country for an extended period of time. Why not? And so we did. It was amazing for me having my family with me in the field. It created a set of understandings around us and differences. It was a fraught and complex space. You know, part of my embodied experience was being hit by a truck um, while what? I was in a car one day. 
And I remember when I went to look into our insurance policy, they said to me, well, we can fly you out to Australia to get you checked. And I'm like, but I've got these two tiny children. And they were like, you yeah, know, well, you can't have them. And I'm oh. like, I'm breastfeeding one. Like I, I am a package deal. And they were like, no. And so I ended up going to the one chiropractor in Vanuatu. And I can't tell you any more about that story, except that it wasn't good <laughs> because that was it. Right. You know, and so I feel like there are so many ways in which our research can be emboldened if we start from our own positionality and we find these places of being real, you know, and acknowledging that we're real and we come with these complexities and that people we see are real and that they come with complexities. And that's the point of exchange, right? Rather than setting it up as being a researcher and a researched and a lone wolf heading off into the wilderness to find those mysterious others and write the definitive book about them. I mean, that's dead. We have to name it for what it is. It's old, it's tired. It's part of this legacy that anthropology leaves us with that I'm deeply ashamed of, right? And on that, I'm going to have to bring this episode to a close just with one more pitch because there are obviously things we didn't get to, things we didn't quite unpack. Go to the Facebook page, the Facebook group, the Familiar Strange Chats, sign in, join the group, come and talk to us about it. So I'd like to thank Julia Brown. Thank you. Jody Lee Trembaugh. Thanks again. Siobhan McDonald. Thank you. And myself, Ian Pollock. And I'd like to just make a note, this is my last panel podcast with The Familiar Strange because I'm leaving Australia, moving to Indonesia. I just want to thank all the listeners out there for speaking with me. It's been a really wonderful growth experience. And just to close out the way I would if I were giving a speech in Indonesia by saying, thank you all so much for this opportunity and please forgive me for any mistakes or shortcomings. And we just want to take the opportunity to say thanks so much, Ian. This podcast would never have come about without both your enthusiasm and your drive and your expertise. And we are really going to miss having you around. It's been such a fun project. And it's now for Australian anthropology to carry forward. People, if you are interested in being involved in this podcast, I hope you'll get in touch. We've got more fantastic projects on the horizon more announcements to come today's episode was produced by all of us at the familiar strange our executive producers are deanna Cato and matthew Fong. subscribe to the familiar strange podcast you can find us on itunes and all the other familiar places including spotify find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today plus a link to siobhan and annie's wonderful fieldwork resource and our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com if you want to contribute to the blog or have anything you want to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. Bye-bye.